It is so good to see so many faces here today, so many half-faces anyway. Perhaps this is a foretaste of what's to come. We'll continue to pray for that, but in the meanwhile, we can give thanks for this uh, wonderful occasion on this uh, festive day in the life of the church. As we turn our attention now to the reading and proclamation of God's word, let's bow for a word of prayer. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So illumine now our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we might receive with joy what you have to say to us today. These prayers we make in the name of Christ, the Word made flesh. Amen. The Old Testament lesson comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 52, beginning at verse 13. Listen now for God's word to you. God says through the prophet, See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of mortals, so he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard they shall contemplate. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of sufferings and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 15, and 20 through 28a. In this text, some Greeks approach the disciple Philip and say, Sir, we'd like to see Jesus. And in a lot of old pulpits, there's an engraving of that verse somewhere that says in the old King James, Sir, we would see Jesus. I don't see it in ours. I was looking around for it. But it's a wonderful reminder of what the task of the preacher is and also those who hear the word proclaimed. All of us labor together to see Jesus every time we listen to a sermon. So that is my prayer for us today as well, that we, like the Greeks, would seek Jesus. Listen once again now for God's word to you. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. 
Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it goes without being said, but I'll say it anyway. None of us like to suffer, right? Of course not. We don't like to endure challenging times. We don't like the anguish that comes from navigating the loss of a loved one, or quitting an addiction, or standing up to injustice. No, 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 no. Of course not. We prefer life's more simple pleasures. We enjoy the path of least resistance, or simply just minding our own business. And our world presents us with countless options and choices such that we're often simply tempted to take the easy path, which is an almost always available alternative to the right and true path. What's ironic about all of this is that although none of us looks forward to the hardest moments of our lives, all of us ultimately have to face hard things. All of us must eventually endure some kind of suffering, some kind of pain and affliction, no matter how hard we might work to avoid such circumstances, eventually they track us down. And it is as we face such moments that our faith in God must be for us the anchor in the midst of stormy seas that we need it to be. For so it was with our Lord Jesus Christ. As he entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, Jesus knew exactly what was lying before him in the week ahead. He knew that now his hour had come, the time had arrived, for him to lay down his life for the sins of the world. He knew that God so loved the world that God had sent him for this hour, for this very purpose. He knew that all the people waving palms would soon turn on him, that he would be arrested and sentenced to death, even death on a cross. And like any human being about to endure suffering, Jesus was feeling anguish about the awful events that lay before him. 
Now my soul is troubled, he says in our text, more, more forcefully in the Greek than the NRSV betrays. Jesus is facing inner turmoil. He's deeply disturbed. This is not the kind of trouble that just sort of distracts the mind. This is the kind that keeps you up at night, that causes you to tremble. So great was his anguish, in fact, that he seems to be in a totally different world than his disciples, who remain a bit naive about what lies ahead. Part of the loneliness of suffering is that it is always individualized, right? No one else can completely understand our suffering. No one else can completely enter into it with our own eyes. And even when we're surrounded by support, sorrow and solitude always go hand in hand. People can journey with us, but they cannot journey for us. The disciples, for their part, must have known by now that something was coming eventually, but it doesn't seem to them to be as pressing as Jesus now knows it to be. After all, the fanfare with which Jesus was met at Jerusalem was compelling. Palm branches, people laying down coats. Everyone seems to be on his side. Everyone seems happy to see him. Jesus' ministry, which was to be for the Jews first and then for the Gentiles, also seems to be reaching its fulfillment. After all, as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, some Greeks come to Philip and request to see Jesus. The whole world has gone after him, the Pharisees complain in our text. And yet Jesus is silent throughout this scene. And when he finally speaks, he says something entirely unrelated to the Greeks' request to see him. Did you notice that? Such is the weight of this moment, such is the weight of this hour, that the Greeks vanish completely from this scene. We don't hear anything about them again. We don't know if they ever met Jesus or not. Instead, Jesus' solemn words swallow up the moment. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. And then Jesus asks a probing question that reveals the turbulence of his inner state. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, forgive me. Father, save me from this hour. Throughout the Gospels, as we've seen during Lent, Jesus asks many questions. Some of his questions were meant to make black and white thinking a little more gray, a little more nuanced. Some were meant to elicit a black-and-white response from gray, wavering hesitation. Some questions were rhetorical or sarcastic, meant to make a strong point. All the questions were for the sake of teaching and critical thinking, and all of his questions were directed towards others. But now Jesus asks a probing question, not to another, but to himself. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Here we have a question that's alarming to any of us who have marveled at Jesus' sure conviction of purpose and clear-minded mission that's been on display throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus has always been so sure of himself. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem has given way now, though, to anguish and dread, and Jesus questions himself. 
It seems true that suffering poses the greatest threat to human confidence and trust in God. Nothing causes even the most steadfast among us to question ourselves quite like suffering around which there is no detour. Can I really do this? We ask ourselves, even if we've done it before, even when we think we're prepared for the worst, when the hour of suffering actually comes, its impact can be staggering. Throughout this year, the theme of day school chapels on Thursday mornings has been perseverance, and it's been the perfect theme for this frustrating and disorienting year. And it's also the perfect word to describe Jesus' resolve as he enters Jerusalem, knowing what lies ahead. Jesus demonstrates that perseverance through hard things, perseverance through suffering, demands mastery over our initial impulse to satiate our appetites by simply doing the easiest thing or the most pleasurable. Doing hard things requires a willingness to forego the path of least resistance, that we might arrive at our destination with our integrity intact and our faith rooted in God's larger purpose. I always enjoy working with young couples as we prepare for their wedding day. I try to ask them hard questions to get them to think deeply about the meaning of marriage and the significance of the vows they intend to make. But they don't love to enter into the dissonance of unconsidered challenges. Sometimes I get the sense that couples are trying to prove to me how great their relationship is, rather than wanting to give some deep, constructing thought to their growing edges, such that their relationship might be the best it can be. I don't know why I'm so intimidating. It's not like I've been married for 50 years and have it all figured out, but sometimes that's the dynamic that I sense. One time I asked this couple, have you talked about kids? Yes, we're going to have three kids, they said, having already planned their future. And I was dissatisfied with their unsophisticated response, so I said, well, what happens if for whatever reason you're unable to have kids? And they were sort of startled and looked at each other unsure and finally said, why would you ask us that? I tried to explain that fertility challenges can create financial and emotional stress in a relationship, so it might be worth considering, blah, 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 blah. They were not interested. Oh, we'll just figure it out, they said curtly. We prefer to avoid hardships at all costs, right? We don't even really like to talk about them. But suffering is ultimately unavoidable, especially if we're living faithful lives. You know, we can raise our children with love and discipline and presence, but the time will come when they make a significant mistake, and we have to deal with it and decide how to respond. We can build a large house in a gated, secure community, but the time will come when we can't insulate ourselves from the suffering and injustice of the world. We can preach the virtues of integrity and honesty, but the time will come when we're presented with an opportunity for dishonest gain. And when those times arrive, when we begin to question ourselves, what will we say? What will we say? Will we extend to our children a grace that heals and restores even at great cost to ourselves? Will we pursue equity and justice in our world, even as our own wealth increases? Will we operate with the same integrity in secret 
that we present in front of the adoring eyes of others, what will we say? Yes, life's greatest challenges sometimes prompt us to question ourselves and tempt us to do the easy thing instead of the right thing. But the path of least resistance is rarely the most faithful path. The narrow way of Christ is hard, but it leads to life. Jesus' probing question to himself quickly leads to an assured answer. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus both acknowledges the anguish that he feels and confronts it with the strength of his faith. Immediately after questioning himself, Jesus reiterates his commitment to faithfully fulfilling his purpose. When we navigate life's greatest challenges, our faith is what holds us fast and keeps us grounded. Jesus lays his anguish before God and renews his commitment to faithful obedience to the Father, from whose bosom he was sent forth. As one theologian puts it, in time and in grace, terror gives way to steely peace, to resolve, to trusting. Nothing draws us closer to God than trusting God in the midst of suffering and pain. Now, as Jesus submits to the suffering and pain of Holy Week, he declares that God will be glorified. Jesus' perfect obedience to God's will, even unto death, brings God glory. It's important to acknowledge that the pairing of God's glory with human suffering has a dubious theological history. It has sometimes been suggested that the structures of injustice that result in human suffering need not be confronted because God is somehow, by means of them, glorified. The presence of suffering when seen as punishment for sin has sometimes thought, been thought to bring God glory as some kind of divine vindication. Let me share with you one example of what I mean. Women have sometimes been told that they need to stay in abusive relationships for the sake of some kind of duty, to bear the cross as Jesus did out of reverence for some abstract idea of redemptive suffering. But this is obviously the wrong way to think about God's glory in the midst of suffering, right? Images portraying God as a tyrant to justify the existence of human tyrants in fact portray the most outrageous categories of human sin and depression. And the events of Holy Week and theologies of atonement are littered with such hazards if we do not approach them thoughtfully and carefully. So what then do we mean when we speak of God's glory? How do we understand God's glory in the midst of suffering in a way that's faithful to who we know God to be? Well, it's best to simply understand God's glory as pertaining to God's presence. To God's presence. The glory of God is the palpable presence of God. When God is somehow especially near especially tangible. 
God's glory is evident when God's spirit surrounding us seems especially dense or thick. God is glorified in suffering, not because of any virtue within the suffering itself. No, God is glorified because God sticks with us through suffering. God is glorified because God's faithful presence is on display as God remains faithfully present with us despite the severity of the human sin that causes suffering. God is glorified because God is a strength and shield equipping us to persevere. God glories in being known and being loved, in being present. And so when Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, he is affirming God's presence with him, both in that moment and in the holy week ahead. The glory of God is the presence of God which sticks with us whenever we face trials and suffering. All of us who follow Christ can learn through him to trust God in the midst of our fears and to strain our ears beyond the voice of despair to listen for God's last word. May it be so this week and throughout the Holy Week ahead. Thanks be to God. Amen.